But let's go ahead and go to Hebrews chapter 7. We are going to continue uh, discussing Melchizedek. So last week, uh, we mainly stayed in the Old Testament, references to him, and uh, we, talk, we kind of looked a little bit at the history, uh, the area, they have the place where they believe uh, was the, uh, they call it the altar of Melchizedek. Very well could have been. Um, I don't know if any of you watched my live stream I did with Evangelist Brian Sharp. Uh, he showed a jawbone on there that they found in that area where um, they uh, excavated and found the Temple of Melchizedek, which is also the area where Abraham uh, sacrificed Isaac as well. And so, uh, is it the actual jawbone? Probably not, but it could be. You know, I'd like to have a jawbone from there that dated back to that time. And if I had one, if it was mine, I would claim that it was. Uh, but at the same time, no, no one really knows. Uh, but, but either way, uh, it's, it's just interesting to think about. Because no matter what, um, Abraham did sacrifice a ram instead of his son somewhere in that area. Because the Bible tells us that. So... Anyway, but let's go ahead and go through, uh, we're going to go through Hebrews chapter 7 today, and I want to talk about uh, Melchizedek, because there's so many great lessons that we can learn from him, and specifically too, I'm noticing more and more things that the scriptures teach us, just things that we see in the Bible that just completely debunk a lot of the dispensational theology that's out there. Uh, There's this mentality out there that whenever we start seeing certain things mentioned in the Bible, it was like God revealed this new thing. But more and more, you know, the evidence is clear that certain things that the Bible teaches have just always been. It has always been, and it is, it's an assumption based on a lot of the false doctrines of dispensationalism that they didn't know about these things, they didn't practice any of these things. And so, in reality, what we are seeing here, I think one of the reasons Hebrews confuses so many people in the Baptist world is because of dispensational theology. And they had a different mentality. In in the dispensational world, we always are trying to figure out what dispensation we're in. And then we look at every new dispensation as all these like new things and new ways. But the reality is, um, you know, the gospel has always been, it's eternal. And obviously, there were some things that ended and some things that changed at the coming of Christ. And that's what we're seeing in Hebrews. So in Hebrews, it doesn't know about all these rules of dispensationalism that it's supposed to follow. It doesn't know any of that stuff. So what does it do? It goes to the scriptures and it shows things uh, and it proves things about salvation today. It proves things about the priesthood of Christ and it uses stuff from before the law. Because again... Larkin hadn't come along yet and messed up everybody's thinking on stuff. And so we'll kind of talk about some of these things as we go through. But so far in the book of Hebrews, the writer has been emphasizing how Jesus is better in everything. And he is about to explain to them, legally speaking, according to the law of Moses, that it was God's holy and righteous law, how Jesus, who was from the tribe of Judah, can still be a high priest. And this would be an important thing for them to understand because something too that often got confused in their theology, especially amongst the Jews, is they had intermingled tradition with Scripture. And sometimes their tradition would actually cause them to err 
and to go away from Scripture. And so usually what they were trying to reconcile wasn't something doctrinal, but it was just it was tradition. And they would often have to just realize, hey, our tradition has gotten us off the path and our tradition has actually got us gotten us in disobedience. And so there were a lot of things that they would say and they would teach that were related to the Scripture. They were using Scripture, but they were misapplying it. They created traditions from those things. And so then later, when Jesus comes along and he changes some stuff, it caused a lot of confusion for them. And I'm telling you, I'm probably going to be doing some preaching on this in the near future, but in the Baptist world, there, there, are, there are traditions that aren't bad. There are traditions that are not sinful, that do not violate the Scriptures. We all have those things, and they're not, and they're not wrong. But sometimes we mix tradition with doctrine. And when we do that, we create a problem. And one of the things that's happening in the Baptist world is there's a lot of traditions that aren't bad that people are trying to turn into sound doctrine. And as a result, they're messing up doctrine. And we don't ever want to do that. Doctrine is more important than tradition. And if our tradition gets us off a of doctrine, we need to dump that tradition and get our doctrine right. And don't, don't get me sidetracked on a lot of these other, other issues. But anyway, let's go ahead and start going through chapter 7, where he says, so in verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And chapter 6 ended where it talked about him being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Because again, Jesus is better. It's all been about Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And so now... He's going to point out some things about Melchizedek, and he mentions how um, he met Abraham returning from that slaughter. We looked at that story last week. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Now watch this. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. And right here is probably one of the main verses that people would use, myself included, that would teach that this was a pre-incarnate Jesus. And uh, I don't know who else could fit that description, not having father, mother, neither beginning of days, nor end of life. And so, uh, what some people can try to do with this and I don't hate somebody if they, if they do this, when it says without father or mother, is some would say, well, it's just showing that, um, you know, he, it, he, he wasn't a priest because of his birthright. This wasn't like the Levitical priesthood where it was. It was supposed to be in the line of Aaron, where he was just somebody who was special, who was chosen of God. And so that's why it wasn't about... So it's not that he didn't have a father or mother. It's just that his father or mother had nothing to do with his priesthood. That's what some would say. You know, he didn't have beginning of days nor end of life. You know, they could kind of spiritualize that away and just say that, you know, it wasn't even something for a specific time frame. You know, I'm not real sure what you do with that. (laughs) But at some point, uh, you know, you have to make a decision. Am I going to take this literally or am I going to take this figuratively? If I'm going to take it figuratively, I got to come up with... uh, an allegory that makes sense. I got to come up with a symbolism that makes sense. And it's really hard to do that with this. I think we can just take it literally. Uh, that, that's what I prefer to do with it. And so notice what he says in verse four. Now, but here's my other question too. 
How did the writer of Hebrews know all this about Melchizedek? If all they had was Genesis. Because Genesis doesn't give us all those facts. Genesis doesn't tell us, oh, by the way, this Melchizedek, he didn't have a father or mother. See, here's something else we need to understand about the Scriptures. There are lots of instructions that were given to people back then that the Bible does not record. See, and that's the mistake dispensationalists make. They think that nobody knew anything outside or from God outside what the Scripture said. That is not true. Remember what Bible the, uh, Hebrews teaches about Abraham, how he knew that God could raise Isaac from the dead for he had received him in a like figure. It sounds like from Hebrews, Abraham knew something about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That it was a figure of that. How did he know that? Maybe God told him. Bible doesn't record all the conversations he had with God. How about Job, who knew about the resurrection? How did he know about that? How did he know that there was going to be that resurrected body when Paul hadn't wrote 1 Corinthians 15 yet and you know, revealed the rapture, as the dispensationalists would say? How, it's, so understand, there was a lot of things they knew about. They knew about clean and unclean animals before the law was given. They knew about sacrifices. God had obviously told them some things and there were some things that were passed down. How were those things passed down? Maybe some writings, maybe by tradition. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Here's what I do know. Hebrews is inspired scripture. And Hebrews tells us this. And so that's enough for us to, you know, take it literally. And, uh, but, it, but understand, there were things they knew back then that the scriptures did not record for us. But they, were st- they still knew them. They were still right. They were still of God. So you got to get your head out of this dispensational thinking where the Scriptures are the only thing that God had revealed to people back then. It's just not the case. And so, verse 4 goes on to say, Now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And he's showing that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And that was important because... If Abraham, they probably held him in high regard than literally any other man. Maybe Moses, but even Moses descended from Abraham. And in that culture, in that world, you know, the farther up the chain you were in the family, or the line in the family tree, the greater you were, the more important you were. And obviously, too, the Scriptures tells us a lot about Abraham. And he was somebody who was a prophet of God and was very special. And that God used and God called him to start this nation. So uh, the Jews were right in the big deal that they made about Abraham. But the writer of Hebrews is just showing, hey, here's some evidence that shows Melchizedek was even greater than Abraham. Why is it doing that? Because this whole book has been showing how Jesus is better. Jesus is better. The Jews were all about Jews. They were all, and they made a big deal about Abraham because he was their father. It was a way to elevate them. It was a way to lift them up. We are a great people because God gave us the temple. Uh, to us, we're committed to the oracles of God. It's all about us. But the reality is, Jesus was greater than all. And it's pretty sad that we still have people today emphasizing an ethnicity and basically replacing Jesus with an ethnic group and looking for fulfillment and prophecies with an ethnicity rather than through Jesus Christ. This is very wrong. But the fact that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek 
showed that Abraham saw himself as, you know, underneath because this man is a priest of the Most High God. That's a big deal. That's very important. And so in uh, Genesis 14, verse 20, it says, And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. And so Hebrews 7, 5 says, And verily, watch this, because we don't think about this stuff a whole lot, but understand these things are true, and these were things that were a big deal with the Jews. Okay? We live in America in 2023. And you know what? We are not allowed to make a big deal about genetics or anything like that, especially if you're white, because then you're racist. And, you know, we're, we're not allowed to have a heritage. You know, we're not allowed to have, you know, have history. And we're definitely not allowed to be proud of it or anything like that. Uh, you know, and we have, we've just stripped all that away in our culture. We are literally just people existing every day, trying to buy stuff. So, and to get more stuff so we can take out loans and make a certain ethnic group even richer. And that's pretty much what we exist for. We don't own anything. We don't have anything. We're just, we're slaves. Okay. We're slaves who are told that we're free. That's all, that's all we are anymore. But so a lot of this thinking is very foreign to us, but let's read what it says here because this would have been very relevant to them in that day and to their way of thinking. And it was just right. But it says, and verily, they that are the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law. That is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. So under that Old Testament law, all the other tribes, they tithed, and those tithes went to the tribe of Levi, because they were a chosen tribe to do the work and the service of the Lord. So that must have been nice for the Levites. Yeah, but you know, the Levites also didn't have an inheritance in the land. The, the, the Lord was their inheritance. And so while all the other tribes, they had land and everything that was theirs and that stayed in their family, the Levites didn't have that. It was the Levites' job simply to just do the work of the Lord. And let me tell you, those other tribes needed that. They needed the Levites doing their job because the things that they did as priests were important so God would bless them as a nation. And so they were in trouble without the Levites. And God told them not to forsake the Levites and not to forget the Levites. And if you go to Ezra and Nehemiah, I think it was, I can't remember. Yeah, uh, but somewhere in the Old Testament, somewhere in the Old Testament, there's a story about how the Levites, they were out basically working the fields, plowing and doing all And God was upset with that. And God was upset with Israel for that because the Levites they weren't supposed to be doing that kind of work. They weren't supposed to be working the land. They were supposed to be doing the service of the Lord. But because the people of Israel weren't paying their tithes, they weren't doing the things that they were supposed to do. They had to survive and they had to go. They had to go to work. And so this was uh, this. This made Israel look really bad. And so look at verse six. But he whose descent is not counted from them. Talk about Melchizedek. He doesn't come from Levi received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. So, yes, Abraham was important. He had the promises, but Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. The one who's kind of more higher ranking and in higher authority. Okay, And listen, it's okay for people to bless others and things like that, but at the same time, too, 
you know, what would seem more appropriate? You know, Brother Chris praying a blessing on Zeke or Zeke praying a blessing on Brother Chris? You know, no, typically it's you know, the other way around. It's the father. It's the elder. It's the patriarch of the family. They're the one with the authority and all, all that. That's how things typically work. And so when you have two guys get together like this, the one that's blessing the other one is typically going to be the higher ranking individual and Melchizedek is blessing Abraham. Just like Abraham blessed Isaac and Isaac blessed Jacob and Jacob blessed the 12, uh, the 12 sons and blessed Ephraim and Manasseh. It's always the greater that blesses. And so they understood this concept and this was proof. This is just proof from a story showing that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And that says, that, and here men that die receive tithes, meaning Levites. But there, in the story of Abraham Melchizedek, when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. Okay? And so, okay, he's pointing out Levites die and receive tithes, but this man, who liveth? Okay, which is better? Who, who, who gives the tithes or who receives the tithes? It's the one who receives and so this is just one more thing showing Melchizedek was greater than the Levites who were always held in high regard by the Jews. And then watch this. And this is something else. This is a concept we don't think about in our culture. But we, you know what? We should. We should think about this. It says, And as I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father, when Melchizedek met him. So technically speaking, Levi paid tithes because he came from Abraham. And, and Abraham was greater than Levi. So this is just one more thing he's doing legally that they would understand to show Melchizedek was superior to Levi. So we shouldn't be surprised. And he's doing this because he wants, he wants the Jews to understand it is okay to follow after Christ. It is okay to forsake the Levitical priesthood, to forsake the inferior sacrifices of the Old Covenant and to go after Jesus Christ. Not only is it, is it better and appropriate, it is what you are supposed to do. And, it is in, and he takes time too later too to show this is actually obeying the law. This is actually what we were commanded to do. And if you don't do this, he covers this in chapter 4, if, if you don't do this, if you don't accept Jesus Christ, you're making the same mistake our fathers made in the wilderness when they didn't believe. And just like they died in their unbelief, you will die in your unbelief. You will lose the inheritance as a people if you do not accept Jesus Christ. They will not lose salvation. Nowhere in Hebrews does it teach a saved person can lose their salvation. It does teach that an ethnicity that a people who had certain promises for, for them as a people, that they could lose their inheritance if they don't have faith or get saved. And that, that's what it is showing. And so, understand, we never had an inheritance. We, uh, you know, we, we, were, uh, you know, we didn't have an inheritance coming to us at birth. We had an inheritance that started coming to us when we got saved. And that's why ours is secure. They had one promise at birth, but it was one that they could lose if they were not of faith, if they did not get saved. And so every Jew 
who never was of faith and never got saved lost their inheritance. But that doesn't mean any Jew ever lost their salvation. So I always, the way I always say it, we got in where the Jews left off. Unfortunately, a lot of them never had faith, where we, and so they never, they, uh, they never received the things where we started. We started out by faith, not by birth. So, important things. But again, I think this concept is interesting that the Levites were credited for tithes because they were in the loins of Abraham. You know, we ought to th- we ought to think about that too when it comes to our descendants. You know, it does make a difference descending from a family who's done things right. You know, I think about that too. It makes it hard for me to quit. It makes it hard on, on God when I come from a family who have been faithful and who have served the Lord un, until they died. It makes it hard. You know, I, I don't really have an excuse for that. You know, if, you know, my parents could do it. My grandparents could do it. There's no reason I can't do it too. And I do. I believe the things that they did have impacted me and have blessed me and have helped me and made a difference in my life. And so it's just something to think about. Uh, you know, that's why the things you do, they don't affect just you. They affect the following generations. And so verse 11 says, if therefore perfection or completion, okay, understand this too. Perfection often is a reference to completion, the finishing of something. If perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? And he's saying this because it was the law that called for the priesthood from the tribe of Levi and from Aaron, proving to the, and also he's showing that perfection was never going to come from the order of Aaron. While they did serve a purpose, while God did call them, it was never God's will for things to be finished with the tribe of Levi. But they did serve a purpose. They absolutely did serve a purpose. And so, verse 12 says, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. And there are things that changed under the new covenant, but all of those changes were necessary and better. All of those changes were God's will from the beginning. They were not plan B because plan A didn't work out. No, God always intended to do things the way He did. So uh, verse 13, For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. So notice that. For he of whom these things are spoken, talking about Jesus, pertaineth to another tribe, which is the tribe of Judah, which no man gave attendance to at the altar. Okay, When it came to the things of the altar and of that old covenant, it was only the Levites that were allowed to do those things. When Uzziah, who happened to be of the tribe of Judah, when he went in there, uh, he became a leper. That was not what God called for. God didn't want him doing those things. But understand, the things of the law were never going to be finished through the Levites. And so verse 14 says, For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. So this is important because if, if you're making the claim that Jesus is the high priest, if you're, if you're a Jew, you're going to be like, that doesn't make sense. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. Priests are from Levi. 
And so that's why he's showing this order of Melchizedek. Showing, no, there is legal precedent for a priest from another tribe. And he's going even further, not just show that it, there was a precedent for it, but this is what God always intended. And he's giving evidence from the law. So, so it says, and it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So that these, this priesthood that was prophesied, it would be an eternal one, unlike the Levitical priesthood. There were certain things in the law too. Like, if, for example, if you had to flee to the city of refuge because of manslaughter, you had to stay there till the death of the high priest. I don't fully understand what that was all about. Uh, I, I, I've got some theories and ideas I won't go into about that. What I do think it could mean, but at the same time too, um, you know, it just showed how things would change. Where the high priest that we have today, things stay the same as long as he lives. And he will live forever. He has uh, eternal life. And so it says, For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. So the law never saved anyone. It never made anyone perfect. Only Jesus did that. And notice how it mentions too, for there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. There were things that, again, it would kind of cease at the death of that high priest. Just, I think God, too, is showing the inferiority of that priesthood, showing that this priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, doesn't finish anything. It doesn't complete anything. No, that the priesthood that's going to finish things, complete things, is going to be a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. That's why it said in Psalms, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We want something that's going to last and that's going to stay forever. And so verse 20, And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made perfect. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And not only did God say that I'm, he swear with us, he's like, I'm not repenting of this oath. He's going to be the priest forever and nothing can change that. Absolutely nothing can change that. So the priesthood, this priesthood had more weight behind it too because it came with an oath, unlike the Levitical priesthood. An oath, a promise from God that it would be forever and it would be permanent. God did not do that with the Levitical priesthood. But He did with this priesthood. Why is it talking about this? It's letting the Jews know, this is better. This is better. And I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. Because we have a lot of people still going to Old Testament prophecies, acting like those things have to play out in that way and it's all about the Jews. And then they get mad when we claim some of these things for ourselves. But it's like, no, it's got to be this way. What they are looking for is an inferior fulfillment of that prophecy. God did not break His promise if God does what He said He was going to do, but He does it in an even better way. God is not doing something against the Jews if God not only saves them, but He saves Gentiles too. God's not doing something 
God's not breaking His promise to them. The Jews can get in on this new covenant, just like we have. But it's like Baptists act like if we don't give them a special prominence over us, that God lied to the Jews. I don't understand how that can be the case. That's a very foolish idea, but you know, if you're going to make up your own doctrine and make up your own words and make up all that other stuff, I guess you can you know, make up what's truth and what's lie at the same time. But we're following the Scriptures here. So, uh, we, don't, we don't get caught up in all that foolishness. But it says in verse 21, or 22, By so much was Jesus made surety of a better testament. Jesus was the guarantee of everything that was promised under the new covenant. Everything promised under the new covenant is backed by Jesus Christ. That's good surety there. That's good guarantee there. And, uh, you know, we preach a whole message just on that. But often people will use assets as a guarantee that they will pay the loan. And Jesus is our guarantee. Jesus is the evidence of our salvation. And that's why we got to watch it we got to watch out. People are getting things technically wrong and they're, they're, they're getting real close to some heresy too when they start making a, you know, your changed life, your reformation, your giving up of you know, drinking and all that kind of stuff is proof of your salvation. Now, proof of my salvation is Jesus Christ. And let me tell you too, it is also heresy. It is also heresy too when you use someone's works as evidence to or proof that they are not saved, or you teach that they can lose their salvation. No, here because this is this is this verse right here too is a great verse to debunk the Calvinist version of once saved always saved. Because in the Calvinist version of it, or perseverance of the saints, they promise that because you know God foreordained you to be saved and all that stuff, you're going to be saved forever. And if you're truly saved, you will repent of your sins and you will maintain some sort of godliness. You know, you can backslide, but you're eventually going to do right. You know, there, there's going to be some evidence in your life that you are truly saved, according to their version of once saved, always saved. Here's proof that I'm always going to be saved. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the proof, all, proof I'm always going to be saved because He never will sin. I will, for sure. You will, for sure. Sin. Jesus never will sin for sure. And so he's our, he's our guarantee that we're saved. That's how come. And so understand there is no such thing as salvation that is not eternal salvation. It's eternal salvation. And I don't want to start preaching tonight's message too. But you know, one of the, let me just give you one brief thing I'm going to be talking about tonight. You're going to hear it repeated. But one of the ways that they're getting us to just to, to cloud up doctrine is they're even getting people who are right on doctrine to start accepting their terms that only bring confusion. And one of the things too is even things like eternal security. Okay, that's not the way the Bible says it. We're always arguing about eternal security or the doctrine of once saved, always saved. When the reality is, what we should be having a discussion about is eternal salvation, because. That's what the Bible calls it. Eternal salvation. How can you deny eternal salvation when it's like spelled out right there in the Scriptures? They come up with fancy names for all these different doctrines so they can add a definition to it. Where if we just look in the Scriptures 
And we see eternal salvation, eternal life. There's nothing to debate. I remember I was talking to a preacher one time and he was talking about, I, he mentioned some preachers like, they don't even believe in eternal life. I was just like, what? How does that work? I was like, they literally deny eternal life? And he said, yes. Said, he said, they believe you can lose your salvation. I was like, oh, well, yeah, there's a lot of people who believe that. But then I was like, you know, that is true. To deny you can lose your salvation is to deny eternal life. Why don't we call it that? That's more accurate. That's a good way to just kind of get them up against the ropes. You're denying eternal life. You can't do that. You cannot possibly debunk that. It, you can't debunk it. What you can do is you can call it something else and then make people try to defend that. No, let's talk about eternal life. Let's talk about eternal salvation. Let's talk about everlasting life. Because that is what the Bible teaches. And so, I'll, I'll, say, more about, I'll say more about that tonight. But uh, understand Jesus is the evidence of our salvation. It says, They truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. I think that's the best eternal salvation scripture in all of the Bible. Why? What does that mean, save the uttermost? It means to the end. He's able to, he's able to save them to the end. Why? Because they persevere? No, because he makes intercession. What sin do I have to do to get Jesus to quit making intercession for me? What sin can I do that he didn't already pay for on the cross? Folks, I'm telling you right now, anybody who says Hebrews teaches you can lose your salvation, we might, you might as well just assume they're not saved. And let me tell you, I, I know a lot of Baptists that teach that Hebrews is like one of these tribulation epistles that does teach you, can lose, you know, that they could in that dispensation. You, you're safe in this dispensation. Y'all are okay, but the Jews weren't okay back then and the Jews in the tribulation won't be okay. No. He is able to save them to the uttermost, to the end, because he ever lived to make intercession. So the only way I can go to hell is if my intercessor dies or quits doing his job and he has an unchangeable priesthood. God would have to break a lot of promises for me to go to hell. And watch this. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Why is that so becoming to us? Uh, because we aren't any of those things. Because we will sin. We will sin. For, the, for, uh, for who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up, up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have an infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. The kind of high priest that Jesus is, unlike the Levitical priesthood that had to offer up sacrifices for their sins, as well as the sins of the people, we have a high priest that didn't have to offer up sins for himself. And because of that, he was able to make a one-time offering for sin. And he is holy. He is undefiled. He's, he is all the things that we needed. And so, again, if you're saved, the Calvinists can come along and talk about how rotten of a sinner you are and how you must not really be saved. But the truth is, no, you are still saved because you have a high priest that became you. And you needed one 
that was without sin. You needed one that would never die. You needed one that would ever live to make inter- intercession. And that's exactly what Jesus does for, for us. So when it comes down to it, a good way to explain the differences in the Old Testament and the New Testament is Jesus is better. Jesus is better, and that's, that's what he's showing in there. Jesus is better. And you want to know why the altar of Melchizedek today, you want to know why it was buried under several feet of just trash and debris? You want to know why that temple's destroyed, gone, and nobody even really knows where it was for sure? Because God didn't need it anymore. He replaced it with something so much better, Jesus Christ. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it can all stay buried forever. We don't need it. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word and thank you for uh, coming and being our high priest. And uh, thank you for the intercession that you make for us. Uh, Lord, I pray help us never get over it. And I pray you'll help us to continue uh, that ministry of reconciliation and telling as many people as we can about what you've done for us so they can be saved as well. In your name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.